you build a bridge between you and your child that can hold heavy things. And the bridge is the conversations and the interactions you have with them from zero to 18. And if you don't have these conversations, if you don't talk to them about their bodies, if you don't talk to them about safety, if you don't talk to them and teach them about emotions and how to, how to be calm and how to regulate, if you don't teach them how to be an actual human in relationship, then when you have to have difficult conversations when they're a teenager, when crisis happens, when bad choices are made, then that bridge is going to be made out of straw. And it's going to collapse under the weight of that difficult conversation for you and for them. My name is Johnny Elsasser, and I'm a former Special Operations U.S. Army Ranger and Tactical Commander to the U.S. Ambassador's Protective Detail. I have seen the struggle even the most hardened men have faced when they combat their inner demons, and I am here to shine a light on those struggles to show that no man is exempt from adversity and internal pain. Men from all walks of life share their stories of hardship, darkness, and perseverance so that every man knows that whatever he is going through, he is not alone. Evolution for men begins now. All right, everyone, welcome back to the Art of Masculinity. We are on with my man Clint Davis today. How's it going, brother? Going good, man. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Oh, I'm so excited. This is not um, what we're going to get into today is not something that uh, I've had an expert on to speak about on the show. And just kind of as you and I were jamming out beforehand, I think this is such a pivotal topic we need to be talking about in today's society. So I am super excited to jump in to this with you. But my first question for you regarding all of this is you're an army veteran, you're an ordained minister, and you're a licensed psychotherapist. Those <laughs> things don't necessarily all go together. How did we get to this point for Clint Davis? <laughs> that's, that's great, man. Yeah. It's weird to kind of wear these different hats. I think I'm from a small town in Louisiana. I'll tell you my background a little bit. Just grew up in a, in a very poor household, lived in a, the country out in the sticks. So when I graduated high school, you know, I'd had some trauma from divorce. I'd had some sexual abuse in my past and sexual trauma and really was just pretty messed up kid and didn't make great grades. And so at the time I was like, well, I'll join the Army National Guard, Louisiana National Guard. This was in 2001. And so joined the Army to pay for college. Well, second week of basic training was 9-11. So I'm sitting on the rifle range and the towers get hit. And I'm like, oh man, this changes everything. And so that led to deployment. And then that led to Afghanistan. And then um, I was in the Superdome for Hurricane Katrina as well. And so when I got out of the, well, when I got out of the military, I had PTSD and was really just struggling with pornography and anxiety and, you know, drugs and alcohol and all the things. But I'd grown up in kind of a, in a Christian family going to church, kind of the, the Wednesday nights and Sundays. And my grandparents were deacons, but I don't think I was really walking that out in the way that I needed to walk that out. And so when I got into counseling and really started working on my, my trauma and my PTSD, um, as I got help with that and got into a church again and got in a healthy space, I really wanted to learn how to do that and give back to other people. So I ended up getting my master's in marriage and family therapy and becoming a counselor. And so when I launched my practice, I really wanted it to be, I wanted to see everybody, uh, Christians and non-Christians alike. And so I you know, got all the training and the certifications and all the letters. But one of those was that I wanted to do it from a ministry perspective when it came to the church. And so I got ordained to be able to, you know, do that work with pastors. And so that's kind of the the nutshell story. I love this. And it's, it's so, it's like such an unorthodox path of kind of like getting there, but then also like, you know, I think there's this important thing where we can like find something in our past that we found was powerful that we steered away from and then get back to it to anchor us to the behaviors and the people that we really crave to be moving forward in life. And that sounds like a little bit on what, on what you did to go and then now start helping people in the way that you do. Right. Yeah, definitely. It was, um, for me, I'd always felt, you know, I was always, you know, I'm an, I'm the oldest child. And so uh, my parents divorced at eight, when I was eight. And so I think that trauma, you know, had a lot of consequences, but also had a lot of strengths. And I think many of us, whatever the worst thing is that happened to us, uh, God can use to shape you and make you healthier and better. And you end up using that for others. And, and so unfortunately, <laughs> there's a lot of trauma that happened along the way that God has used to give me the gift of empathy and connecting with other people and really boasting kind of in my weaknesses and my struggles to help other people see that, you know, they can overcome these things as well. 
there's uh, some things I've heard along this that really just ring true always. And it's the fact that like, you know, that people talk about how God won't, won't challenge you with something that isn't equally as good on the other side, you know, if you make it through or when you make it through it. Right. And that's one of those things that allows us to carry that, Hey, these hard times we've been through, there's a purpose for that. And on the other side of that is a, is a massive way in which we get to impact and help people and help ourselves and have this massive benefit if we can stick that through and just trust that we're going to have that goodness on the other side. And I I love that you carried that message really to this time in your life where you're able to really impact people. And that's just, it's such a beautiful thing to see. And it's, it's so hard to see it in the moment, I think for so many people. And it's so beautiful when you see it on the other side for people and it is really impacting, right? You probably get that a lot. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's a, you know, in the moment still today, as I suffer, I wish that I can remember all the things that God has brought me through. But that's, I think that's our struggle as humans is, you know, you look at the Bible and you look at the story in there and it's, it's, it's people struggling and screwing up and God showing up and rescuing them. And then they're like, Oh God, you're amazing. You're awesome. Look at what God did and look at how he's using this. And then the next suffering, we're like, where's God? Why is he allowing this to happen? And then he shows up and we're like, Oh, this is awesome. God's good. He saved me. You know, of course he's going to. And then Two weeks later, we're like, oh, everything's falling apart. You know, it's it, that's the human condition. And I think for me as a, as a Christ follower, as I grow closer to him and as I'm more filled with the Holy Spirit and I work in being healthier, I'm lower, I'm more humble, I'm more empty so he can be greater. And that's not this like cheesy false humility. It's being real and authentic and going, hey, I'm not I'm not the answer to everything. I'm just trying to I'm just like everybody else. We're all in this together. We're all struggling. We're all on the path to health and happiness and life. And I'm just another journey, journeyer on the way. Yeah, it's, it's so true, brother. And so now that you have come into this space where you are really helping people have this lasting change in their body, their mind, and their spirit, right? Integrating a lot of the science and analytical ways to do things, then pairing that with kind of the spiritual connection. What are you seeing that's challenging people a lot today? I think what I would say ultimately is, is people trying to find how they're going to have internal worth and value. So at the end of the day, when you put your value and your worth in external things, as, as a man, for example, if we're, if we're putting our value in our physique, in our, in our work, in our ability to achieve, in our marriage, in our kids, then those things are going to fail. They're going to fall apart. And so if our, our, our internal value is, is based, based on our external ability, then we're going to live in anxiety and fear and stress all the time. Now, that doesn't mean we don't try to work out and take care of ourselves and, 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 and do good things. We, we obviously should. We don't want to be lazy, but our internal worth and value has to come from somewhere. And so, you know, I work with people from all walks of life, uh, different religions, different beliefs, different backgrounds. But the goal is to make what they say they believe and their behaviors add up, right? You want to be a congruent person. If you, whatever you believe shapes your thoughts and feelings, which shapes your actions. And so we know that from a psychological trauma lens as a clinician, I know that helping people shape, understand their beliefs and these deep rooted pains is super important. But if it doesn't match their actions or their actions don't match their beliefs, then we have a problem. So there are a lot of people within the church, especially, but in the secular world who, you know, they go out and they perform and they, they act all these ways. But then when people see them in private or things get stressful, they don't act the way that they say that they should. Or you have the inverse where, you know, people feel a certain thing and say, well, I believe in God and I believe in, in being a good person and I believe in tr putting my trust in God. But then they put their trust in all the things they can do and all the things they can perform and build. And so both of those are incongruent. And so when we're incongruent within ourselves, then all manner of anxiety and depression and responses are going to happen. And so for me, it's helping people take these external cues, whether that's an abuse situation or war or trauma any suffering that's happened to you as a person and go, what do I actually believe about that? What do I believe about a higher power? What do I believe about myself? And then what do I believe about other people? And when that internal value is, well, I'm worthy and valuable because I'm a human, because I breathe air. And that's really all I have to do to have worth and value. Then there's an outpouring that you can have in your life where you look at other people in the same way. And so instead of being judgmental and critical and egotistical, we start to go, how, how can I use my life since I got what I need because I'm worthy? How can I do the things in my life to love on other people so they feel worthy and how they feel valued, not based on what they can do, but based on who they are? 
Oh, it's so good. Cause like, it's such a, it's such a pivotal mindset to have, but we're seeing so many people struggle with, I, I just see so many people look at like, when they see a, a new relationship, they think, what can I get from this? Instead of being like, what can I give to this? Right. When we see people, um, watching social media, they're comparing their lives and thinking that they're less than, and they're unworthy, right. Of those things, of these great things in life that we all have access to, regardless of who we are. And, um, we see a lot of this judgment just get carried around. Male and female really struggle with this in today's society. And I love that we're getting into this conversation of what's really rooted in today's society to find this integrity in ourselves, to find the connection between our beliefs and our actions like you're talking about and how people are struggling with that. So what's like, what's a way that we can hand like maybe just a small tool to them on people that are really struggling connecting these two pieces, their actions and their beliefs, right? How do we get them to align those together? And I know it's such a big question, but I'm hoping that you've, uh, through all the work you've done, you might have a tool or two that you can just hand over real quick. So is there something that you have seen that you've been able to pass off or a common theme that you've been able to see that you've been able to maybe um, solve for people that you can give out that can help them kind of create that congruency? Yeah. I mean, I can't take credit for any of this. You know, there's nothing new under the sun. So I'm sure somebody smarter than me and, and, uh, and wiser than me came up with it. But one, it's, it's all relational. I think even the conversation me and you were having today, right, we're modeling for people what to do. And I think the, the first thing we have to be able to do is we have to recognize that we all want to be known. Like, I want you to know me. I want you to, you know, people that I'm in relationship with to, to really to know me and know that I'm, my intentions are good and that I want to bring goodness to the world and I, that I'm loved and I'm valued. And, and we really all want that. We want that connection. The problem is, is that we also have these other things in our lives and in our hearts that are dark. I have dark fears and dark anxieties and dark thoughts and things that are selfish. And so for in order for you to really know me fully, I have to say those things to you. I have to talk with you about those things. I have to confess, let's say, those things to another person. And then when they say, well, I love you still, and I'm still here with you, and I'm walking beside you, then I go, oh, now I'm really fully known. You know my good and my bad, and you're still here. But I think when, as a society, what we teach people is don't show anybody your weaknesses. Don't have any weaknesses. And just show people what's good, right? Instagram, you know, social media is all just performance, how, my best self, my best moments. And so what happens is, is that we walk around thinking, Okay, I've put all this out here. I've put all this energy out into the world and in these relationships. But if they really knew what was going on in my mind, if they really knew my behaviors, if they really knew what I thought and did when I was by myself, they would reject me and leave me. So this constant anxiety comes from not being fully known because we actually hide those broken pieces. And so I think that when we, we go to counseling or where we're in a, a relationship with somebody where we're uh, being mentored and where we have vulnerability and openness that's reciprocated, then someone knows us completely and is there in spite of that. That's when we go, well, now I have the confidence to go out and be who I am, you know, good and bad, because I have people in my corner who love me unconditionally. And I think ultimately that is a, you know, a gospel centered kind of way of being is that when you're enough in yourself, and then when you're enough in your primary relationships, the only way that can happen is if you're being if you're being authentic and real about the good and the bad. Mm, yeah, and you you mentioned something in that in that conversation that I want to pull out and that was the modeling, right? Like what people are modeling for one another and this to me was that was a very pivotal part of of your your conversation at that point because for me how this translates, especially to kids, like we see how much it affects adults, let alone yep. how it's affecting children, right? So like this is this is where I really want this conversation to to go, which is really beautiful because when we're adults, we we model for each other and we see these things. And when we have when there's earned respect, there's some form of earned respect, whether it's background or whether you know the person intimately, whatever, there's earned respect. We start to see what that person is doing and what they model, and then we start to behave that way, right? And that's where we start yep. to see either negative or positive influences in our lives. But children don't really have that discernment. They have almost a de facto earned form of respect because you're in an authority position of being an adult, right? So children right. end up see, seeing this and now we're modeling for them. So we, we have these negative things that we're experiencing today. We're trying to help adults through. But then how do you see this really affecting the children of tomorrow? 
Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest traumas that go on in childhood that we kind of, that are, that's hidden from us is that we don't understand that as parents and as adults, yeah, kids just think if my dad's abusive or my dad talks like this, that's just how the world is, right? That's just how things are. And even worse so, if you're a religious person, it can be that's how God is. And so our goal as parents is to model a few things for our kids. I, I would say that all kids need what I call the four A's in the book, affirmation. They need to hear that they're good, they're worthy, they're valuable. They need affection, right? They need hugs and kisses and, and touch. They need authenticity, which is us being um, showing them that we're not perfect, that we, we mess up, that we're in this world with them, that we're growing together. I was just telling my oldest son last night, we were talking about life, and I was like, buddy, I've never parented a nine-year-old. Like This is the first time I've been a dad. And so I'm trying to figure this thing out with you. And so thank you for your patience with me as me and mom try to like figure out how to be parents. And then they need attention. They need time. And especially in the world with phones and overworking, they need quality time with us. They need us to put our phones down when we get home and not be talking to them while we're texting or sending an email. You know, we need to put our things down and what we want and be able to focus really on quality time with them, looking them in the face, having conversations with them. So if we give them those things, then they have an identity that is solid, that's based on this internal thing that we see in them, that we nurture in them. But for many of us, we didn't get either any of those A's or uh, you know, only got one or two of those, or we got the opposite. We got, well, your worth and value is based on performing for me, on making me feel loved, on achieving so I feel like a parent. And I think that is what is one of the root causes of so many identity problems in, in individuals is that, again, that we, we talked earlier about how our, our internal worth and value can't be on external things. But look at how we're parenting children and educating children on success. You know, it's, it, you behave well, so I'm happy with you. You do the right thing. You go to sleep, so I'm happy with you. You eat the food that I want you to eat, so I'm happy with you. And if you don't do those things, then I'm, up ha- un, I'm un- unhappy because I'm dysregulated. And I'm not okay. And so if I'm not okay, or you're not okay, I'm not okay. And if I'm not okay, you're not okay. And then we're like, you need to make good grades. You need to make a grade so you get into a good school, so you you know make good money, so you can be happy. So everything, a lot of the things that we do, not everything, but a lot of the things we do as parents and as a society is teach kids that they need to perform and they need to work and they need to earn all these things so that everybody will be okay with them and then that will make them okay. There's so much of this that I want to pull out, but there's one question that's sticking out for me right now. So I hear you and I love this. And I would ask, so how do we, how do we balance then the things as adults that we know are good for the children, obviously in their development, through their health and things like that, without imposing and projecting and having this form of transactional leadership where it's a punishment and a reward? Like, how do we balance this? Or what have you written on on this to, to how you balance this in life with your kids? Well, in, in the book, Building Better Bridges that I wrote, there's a chapter on how do we talk to a kid who's dysregulated or, or upset? Because I think a lot of the things that happen when we're trying to teach or lead or help kids be healthy as parents, or even in spouses, I mean, if you don't have kids and you're listening to this, just use this as a relational tool yeah. in, in your marriage or in your with your, with your significant other. But I give these six steps and they're based on, you know, just neuropsychology. They're based on understanding how a child and a person is developed and how their mind works. Because here's the deal. Let's, let's nerd out for a second. So, you know, we got right brain and we got this left brain and we got this prefrontal. So our right brain is, is music and art and science and, you know, hand mo- mo- motions and our left brain and feelings. And our left brain is logic and math and black and white thinking. And a kid really develops from about zero to five is all right brain. And then from about five to 18 is is left brain comes online, prefrontal starts to develop. And then when we hit 23 to 27, we really fully develop our prefrontal, which is what I call like the bow tie. It's like the executive who who gets left brain to talk. So when we're super upset, emotional and super fearful, the prefrontal goes, hey, let's let's use some logic here and let's like calm down and find what's true and let's function and let's let's do the right things. So children, their brains are underdeveloped. So they look to us to be their co-regulation, to be their prefrontal cortex. They need someone who's stable and who's confident in who they are and who's regulated to help them regulate. And so if we as adults are just dysregulated all the time because we haven't healed, then we're never going to be able to be that for our kids. And so what happens is, is that 
you have a dysregulated child who is who doesn't have the brain capacity to regulate themselves being upset, right? And they say irrational things. They want to do irrational things. And maybe it's not a child. Maybe it's a spouse or a parent. And they're upset and they're emotional. And they're saying, you don't love me. You don't respect me. You don't care about me, right? Well, if we're dysregulated, now we're in our right brain. So if you look at, a, if you look at an MRI or you look at a brain, when someone's upset or emotional, their left brain is turned off and their right brain is turned on. And so never in the history of social media or the comment section or any argument has anybody who's been dysregulated and upset ever changed when you speak truth or you, or you lecture or you give them facts. No one who's upset is like, oh, <laughs> thanks for pointing out, I'm going to change my belief system, right? It's like it's back and forth. Yeah. And so why science is there, it, a person who's in their right brain is not using their left brain. They cannot learn in that moment. And so a lot of parenting is a child behaving a certain way, us getting dysregulated, us telling them the logical reason that's wrong, and then escalating even more. A lot of the arguments we have politically and, and socially are someone says something emotional, that makes me emotional, and now we go back and forth and get more dysregulated, and no one, no one finds what's true. And so how do we do that? How do we, in an argument or in a conversation, communicate effectively? Well, the first thing we have to do, the first step is we have to be connected to truth, our own truth. We have to know what's true about us, that we're worthy and we're valuable in spite of the argument, in spite of what's going on around us, and in spite of any conflict. If we know that, then we're, our bodies, our nervous systems regulated, and our left brain is online where we can learn and we can stay stable and we can teach. The second thing we have to do is we have to sympathize. We have to actually go, wow, I hear you. I hear you that you want to eat the chicken nuggets and not this thing. I hear you, wife, that when I don't do the dishwasher this way, that that makes you feel out of control. I hear you that you think racism is a thing, or you think sexism is a thing, or you think this is a thing. The third step is empathy. We have to actually have the capacity to put ourselves in their shoes and go, hey, if I were you, if I were where you're at, knowing what you told me, I might feel the same way. But pride is the thing that keeps us from empathy, because what we want is to say, well, if that happened to me, I would never do that, right? I would never act that way. I would never think that way. I would never do those things. And so empathy is killed when we do that. The fourth step, right? So we, we connect, we know who we are, we show some sympathy, we actually empathize and realize we're not better than the person in front of us. We're not better than our child. We're not any more in charge of our feelings than they are to some degree. And then we offer support. We go, hey, how can I help you right now? What do you need? What do you need in this moment? to feel safe and to feel regulated so we can get to truth. And the fifth is then we offer truth. Then we give facts. Then we teach, which the word for teach is discipline, which comes out of discipleship. And then lastly, we make a plan. And so I came up with those steps out of all the research. I put them together through a lot of different books and readings that have, you know, everybody has their steps or their things. But for me, it just, it flowed really nicely. And for any Christian listeners, if you go to Jesus with the story of the woman at the well, he basically walks through those steps every time he's dealing with anybody who's super emotional, super wounded, feeling lots of shame. Jesus doesn't walk in the door and go, stop sinning, go do something different. <laughs> he, he connects and sympathizes and he empathizes and he, he then offers support. He doesn't demand or force, right? Now with the religious and the pompous and the arrogant, he's a little different. But with those of us who are struggling and, and, and having a hard time and in pain, Jesus always comes in, in these steps. And so, you know, whatever religion you're from, I think you can either take the neuroscience or you can take the, you know, the Christianity, but they're both true. And so I think if we can have a robust way of going, I need to be okay because I'm worthy and valuable. And, and this relationship or this, uh, this parenting thing that I'm doing is not a reflection of me, right? One of the things I think as a parent that's so difficult is we we project onto our kids like our own stuff that we haven't recovered from. Yeah. And so we've been taught that A plus B equals C, that, you know, my kid is a reflection of me. And if they're making good grades, that means I'm a good parent. If they're doing good in sports, that means I'm doing the right thing. And if they're throwing a fit or they're being disrespectful, I must be doing something wrong. And sometimes that's true, but oftentimes your kid is just a human who's growing and learning. And our job is to walk alongside them and figure out who they are and support them on the journey that we're on as well. 
Mm, I love that. Very powerful. And I love that you put like, obviously, I wouldn't have expected anything different that you put this much research into the the background of what is actually going on neurologically, but also how this connects to us spiritually. Like you said, you put that perfectly. It's like you can either take the science or take the spiritual. Either way, they meet in the same spot, right? And that's uh, so good. But how do we just open this conversation for adults to even realize that this process has a profound impact on the way the child develops, right? How do we get that conversation yep. just going? So maybe they're in they're in that place where truth is allowing them to evolve and grow and question themselves. I think doing your own work, you know, going to a counselor, going to a guy, going to someone who can who can listen to you and nurture you and, and have space for you to say, here's what I'm feeling and here's what I'm thinking and here's what I'm doing. I mean, if you've never been taken care of or nurtured and you don't have any hours during your week where someone else is modeling for you and allowing you to have space, how are you going to do that for someone else? When you have to have the capacity to, uh, to, to let your kid throw a fit and let your kid process emotions or let your teenager say something disrespectful and you have to maintain cool, calm and collection, well, then you need to practice by letting someone do that for you. Yeah. You know, like having and go and say, listen, this is how I'm feeling. It's messy. It's ugly. It's nasty. Now, again, do you love me? And are you with me? Even though I said all that? Yes. Okay. Now let's find truth. And so you can't pour from an empty cup. And so if you, if you're not doing that work, if you're not creating space in your life to meditate, to pray, to give yourself space, to be with other human beings who are doing that same thing, who are, who are speaking truth to your life, who are challenging you in a loving way, then you're not going to be able to do that for your kids or anybody else. And one of the things that you know, the book is called Building Better Bridges. And the concept is, is that you build a bridge between you and your child that can hold heavy things. And the bridge is the conversations and the interactions you have with them from zero to 18. Yeah. And if you don't have these conversations, if you don't talk to them about their bodies, if you don't talk to them about safety, if you don't talk to them and teach them about emotions and how to, how to be calm and how to regulate, if you don't teach them how to be an actual human in relationship, then when you have to have difficult conversations when they're a teenager, when crisis happens, when bad choices are made, then that bridge is going to be made out of straw and it's going to collapse under the weight of that difficult conversation for you and for them. And so, you know, I'm trying to teach parents that we have to heal our own inner child and our own pain so that our kids don't dysregulate us and make us project all these things onto them that we didn't even know were there. It's like you're literally reading my mind because that was my next question for you was going down this path of like, because you mentioned how you spoke to your, your son and I was like, wow, like that takes a lot of humbling. You know, because you have to break the facade of the authority that you were taught is every adult, right? Like, because we grew up with that, but you're having to break this yep. facade and then humble yourself to have that true conversation with your son saying, Hey, man, I don't know. I don't know what it's like to raise a nine year old. I'm learning too, bro. So thank you for being patient. Like, you wouldn't, there's a, there's a lot into that, even that simple statement. There's a lot there that builds into what you're talking about. And that's what I was going to ask was like, is this kind of those foundational statements? Are these the kind of foundational honesty and humblings that you teach in your book that allow you to have these difficult conversations later down the road? Yeah, it's kind of the preface to all of it. You know, the first five or six chapters is some of the stuff we're talking about today, because, you know, I could have written a book on like, you know, and we're going to get there, but talking about pornography and pre prevention and protection and all this kind of things. But that's a lot of what we have out right now is is very poppy, catchy, here's what to do in this moment. And very few people are teaching why. People are teaching the foundations and the meaning and the purpose behind it. And so when we get into a moment when there's no purpose and there's no deep-rooted belief and no deep-rooted foundation, we go back to the easy, unhealthy, dysregulated behaviors. And so, you know, sleep training or, you know, dealing with a kid. I can say all this all day long and my kid walks away and slams the door. And then I'm going back to when I slammed the door to my dad you know, and what he did, right? That I was getting my, you know, teeth knocked down my throat if I, if that was the thing that I did in my home. And so one of the things I've learned is that the things that upset us the most about our kids are sometimes the things we were never allowed to do. When our kids are super vulnerable or super open or what we would say is disrespectful or out of control or whatever, a lot of times we were never allowed to do that. And so it pisses us off that they're getting to do it. And we feel this need to like hammer down on it because we're like, if I were you, 
I would, you know, we either think it or say it, right? And that's just our own inner child screaming, going, man, this was not fair for me. And this is, this is uncomfortable. I do like, I don't know how to deal with your big emotions because I was never allowed to have them. Mm. So it's triggering kind of this inner child, right? So you're, you're getting a trigger for this inner child, something maybe you didn't, you weren't able to do. Do you always, do you also think it's paired with like the perspective of, of an authority figure of like, I wasn't allowed to do this. And if my parents saw me allowing this, I would get scolded by them too, right? Is that part of this? A hundred percent that happens. You know, we our our cue is from society telling us, again, you are responsible for everything that your child does and they are part of your identity. And so if you let them talk back, if you if you make them go to sleep on time, if you allow them to do XYZ, then you're not being a good parent. And so we're still looking for our parents' affirmation, even if we're not in relationship with them anymore, their narrative is in our head and we're still trying to please that narrative even if they're past or even if we don't have a relationship. And if we do have a relationship and they're still unhealthy, it's even tripled down on all that. And so we, we have to be very mindful of what is it that I want deep down in my heart? What does me and my spouse and my significant other really want? And what do we want our family to do that's different? And again, all of that feeds into the same thing of our worth and value, our security. You know, If we did a percentage chart, right? how much of that is based on what other people would say and think then how much of that is based on what I think and believe and the closest people around me who actually know me, who know my good and bad, who are walking in life with me and who can contextualize why I'm doing what I'm doing. It's like, don't take advice from people, you know, you wouldn't go to for advice. You know, like you're, you're, you're not, you're going to these people, you would never even ask their opinion, but yet you're taking their advice and, and letting it have some kind of effect on, on your life. And so we have to just, it's a long road, but it's a, it's a lot of work to get there. And, and I'm not perfect in it by any means. So I want to say that very clearly. Yeah. All the things that I say and all these things that I do, I don't do perfectly. I do think that as I've matured and as I'm growing, they're fewer and farther between. Yeah. So it, the same triggers, the same issues come up. I've yelled at my kids. You know, I've said things that I don't mean. I've regretted things that I've engaged with them with. The difference is, is that I always repair my ruptures. I've never had anyone in therapy, anyone in counseling, and I have, you know, 20 therapists that work for me, and they've never had this either. No one's ever come into counseling and said, hey, listen, my dad was imperfect or my mom was imperfect. They did X, Y, Z. Then they apologized about it. They did, and they grew, and we grew from it, and I need to talk to you about it. I I can't imagine they've said that. (laughs) They haven't, but our biggest... As parents sometimes, or in a marriage, is we lose our temper or we fail, and then we go, oh my gosh, I'm just like my parent. My kid's going to have all this trauma like I do. It's going to be all these problems. And it's like, no, not if you repair it. Most problems is that it was never repaired. Someone got treated negatively. Someone was neglected. And no, no adult ever stopped in the moment at five or 10 and 15 and said, hey, this was not supposed to happen to you. This is my responsibility and my fault. I should have protected you. I should have prevented these things. And here's whose fault it is. And here's what we're going to do about it. That's what we bring to therapy. We bring we bring to therapy and to counsel needing truth from someone so we can stop feeling so much shame about things that happened to us that weren't our fault. The problem is, is that if we didn't do that work right now, we are bleeding on people who didn't cut us. So we have trauma that's happened to us. That's not our fault. And we should not hold that narrative. But now we've had a self-fulfilling prophecy. We've, we've listened to the lies people have told us. We've believed them. And now we've hurt other people because of our hurt. And so two things. We have to acknowledge that we were a victim at some point and things happened to us that were not our fault. And we have to move that responsibility from that inner child out. But then we have to take personal responsibility for how we're currently hurting people because of our pain. And we have to change our behaviors and move out of the victim seat. Oh God, this is, this is gold. And I, and I love, I love the term repair the rupture because I, I think that that to me is the most human aspect of social relationships is like, we're imperfect. We, we have emotions. We allow things to get to us because we do have traumas. We do have dysregulation, but at the end of the day, and this goes back also to that connection with God and like the following of the Bible is like, if we repair that, if we apologize and ask for forgiveness from that, whether it's with our kids, whether it's with our partners, right? Like 
that goes so far in healing those wounds that they don't end up turning into long-term traumas, right? And it's so it's so powerful. It seems so simple, but we, we, we just have this, we have this ego. We have, you put it perfectly, we have this pride. And I, I agree with that so much. We have this pride that stops us from saying, man, Clint, I'm really sorry, man. I didn't mean to treat you that way. I let that get away from me. You know, we have this pride. And, and how do we challenge this prideness? Because it's going to come up in all of us. It's come up in me when I'm like with my niece who we've, we've taken care of a lot in our lives. But like my pride gets in me too. I, every, a lot of the things you said, I'm like, yep, done that. Resonate with that. But like that pride, how do, how do we check that pride and say, hey, man, like I got it. I get why you're saying this, but like, this isn't going to serve me. Yeah. Well, when we, when we talk about masculinity, right? It's like, we have to realize that masculinity, how God made us as men, exa- especially is to be emotional creatures. Research shows that little boys are actually way more emotional than little girls, yep. but we crush that and we've smushed that because we see being emotional as out of control and weak. What's strong is being in control and aware of our emotions and not acting out of our emotions. But it's not being disassociated and checked out. Um, it's, it's going, I know who I am. I know what I'm feeling. I can name it. And now I'm going to find truth within myself and not act on these lies and this fear. And I'm going to do something differently. And I don't think that happens outside of relationships. I think we need other people to, who, who know our truths. Right. So if I call my best friend CJ right now, he's like my brother. If I called him and it said, Hey, I just got off this podcast. I'm feeling really down on myself. I'm feeling, I'm feeling bad. Right. It, it, it didn't go well. He would say, Are you feeling unknown? Because that's a key word that is a struggle for me. I want people to know me. I want, I want to feel known. Or he would say, like, Are you feeling not good enough? Do you feel like you didn't do your best? And then he would say, You know, that comes from XYZ. You know, we've talked about that this week. You know, this is going to come up. That's not true. I know you. You are enough. Like you, here are the ways that you're enough for me, and you show up for me. Here's the, here's the ways you show up for your wife. You need to remember what's true about you, right? And I'm going to be like, oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. You're right. It doesn't matter on the podcast. It doesn't matter what Johnny thinks of me. It doesn't matter what his listeners think of me. What matters is the people who are actually in my life and the God that I serve. And so I'm going to move forward. I can't just do that on my own in a closet. <laughs> like I can try. It's beneficial, right? It's not. It's not completely useless. Yeah. God God is for us this way. He is internal in us and the Holy Spirit, in my belief. But he also put the Holy Spirit in other people. And he also wired people to be God's image. And in relationship, we can, we can get God both this way in our prayer life and in our relationship with him. But we also get it through people in our lives who know us and see us and can encourage us with truth. Mm, yeah, that's that's powerful. And yeah, yeah, it's we the common man wants to go at it alone. The common dudes like, "No, no, no, I got this," right? Like so many men struggle with that, but that support system is pivotal. Well, that we go at it alone because we've always had to. Yeah. It's a survival mechanism that saved our life for our entire childhood, and so it's a best friend that we don't want to give up. And we we go, "It worked." And it did work. Whatever the coping skill is that a guy listening to this has, that they're like, no, this works, and by God, I'm doing it, and it, I'm not giving it up. It's be, if you're holding on to it that strongly, it's because it it, it was a it was a survival tool. Yeah. It, it definitely saved your life. And if you wouldn't have done it, you would either be dead, or you would be weak and miserable, or you would be you know whatever negative thing you want to say. But as a man, we have to get to a point where we go, is that working now? Yes. Is that helping us in my current relationships? Is that helping people, people who are actually healthy and want to love on us and support us and encourage us? Are we pushing them all the way or dominating them or pushing them down because we're so terrified of experiencing the things that we experienced for decades? And I would say the answer for most people is yes. And so it goes back to that humility of going, oh, I am not everything. I can't be everything. I need other people who have different skills and different resources, different strengths, and we have to do this thing together, whether that's a spouse or a best friend, or even our kids grow up and they, they have things that we need and that, that can shape us and push us and make us sharper if we can humble ourselves and really, really want that. Mm, this, it's so good because that is, that is exactly like what we have to, we have to humble ourselves that's, or else we're, we're just going to be fighting our way, digging our way into misery and shame and guilt and regret that many men carry to their deathbeds. I don't know about you, but I listen to a lot of podcasts and this is the stuff that I never hear anybody talk about or very, very rarely. Yeah. 
it's like a it's a pseudo achievement. It's like perform, do these things, push, be a man, and all these things will kind of fall into place. Yeah. And for me, I think the deep work of of what we're talking about today, like I'm just being encouraged by our conversation already. I'm like, yeah, I need to yeah. I need to practice what I'm preaching. Areas. You know? Yeah. I, well, I've shared this in you know I've spoken in in a lot of different men's communities and stuff. And one of the things I told guys that really helped them, I was like, listen, I was special operations. I've done the hard stuff. I did the hardest things physically. You can the top one percent of the U.S. military. I've done some of the hardest things you can imagine physically. And guess what? The hardest thing I've ever had to do was look at my own shadows. The hardest thing I've ever had to do was to sit with myself and ask other men in my life for support. The hardest thing I've had to do was come to terms and own my life for good and bad, every point of what's up to this to at this point, and ask help from God, ask help from my friends, ask, you know, ask for for strength, right? And like those are things that that was the hardest thing I've ever had to do. It's still the hardest thing I have to do. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. But I love this because we're we're you know we we talked about this a little bit and and I want to really address this because we talked about it a little bit but we talked about how as parents we're modeling as adults we're modeling and there's this delicate balance of doing this you know knowing what's good for our kids but not imposing or projecting like some trauma or lack in our life right like there's there's this delicate balance and so when we we know things that are good for our children. There are also things we know are inherently bad. And right now we're seeing this really like deep violation of children's rights, especially with the access to porn, especially with this access to objectification of children or even including them in very uh, non-normal environments where they have naked bodies around them from people that are not known to them and like in, in public and see. So like, I want to talk with you about this. This is something big that you discuss. This is something big. You also are part of in numerous different ways. So can we talk about your view of this in society today and, and what is really going on and, and also the connection to how parents can help with this? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the, the, the main thing I would want people to do, um, obviously is get the book. Yes. Uh, yes. The Building Better Bridges, it's, it's called, a, I'll show it on the screen, but it's, uh, it's called A Guidebook to Having Difficult Conversations That Can Save Your Children. And the main premise of the book is what I, I got to do a TED Talk. So people just type in Clint Davis TED Talk, they can listen to the TED Talk and get the premise of the book as well. But uh, what I'm trying to help under pe- people understand is that most of us at our age and older, 35 and up really, were what I would call, we have a childhood of sexual neglect. And so the study is adverse childhood experiences scale. It's things that happen to children that shape their whole life. And there's physical, emotional, and sexual abuse. And then there's physical and emotional neglect. And there's a bunch of other things. But what I realized is that in my life and in thousands of people that I've talked to and really hundreds of thousands of people that we've treated, parents talking to their kids about a few, a few things. So sexual development in general, consent, body safety, and proper terms for private parts. Those are the four main things in an age-appropriate way over the course of their lifetime. Those are conversations that over 90% of people have not had. So the analogy I use is like when you have a kid or let's say you, you walk your niece on the sidewalk, right? You say, hold my hand, look both ways, don't let go, don't walk in the street and watch for cars. Well, we do this because we want to give this child who's a toddler toddling around or a little kid safety. We want to give them structure. We want to know what, what's going to kill them or hurt them, and we want to give them context. It's like we live in a society where the entire society was allowed to just walk out into the street and get hit by cars they didn't know existed. So if, if we look at masturbation, menstruation, erections, nocturnal emissions, any of these things that every single human being, male or female, experiences... So, you know, the science is every male experiences an erection, every female has menstruation, right? Barring any kind of medical issue. Masturbation, for example, same. If we, as a parent, allow our child to experience those things and never talk to them about it, then their first experience with it is shame, fear, and surprise. So as a male, every male has a wet dream. That's what a nocturnal emission is. And if you wake up in the middle of the night, not knowing that's going to happen, you feel weird, you feel disgusting, but you're also aroused. You have no clue why this is happening. And what you don't do is go say, hey, dad, why did this happen? Mm-hmm, yeah. Like, what's going on, right? You either now Google it <laughs> or you ask a friend, right? Yeah. You type in hard penis, for God's sakes, if you're 12. Like, <laughs> you, you type in these things 
And that's usually kids today's first introduction to porn. For us, for us, it was asking a friend. It was experimenting with a friend. It was doing something to try to figure out what's going on with our bodies. And the neglectful part is that our parents neglected to have those conversations, to build that bridge between us because no one talked to them about it. Yeah. Right. The cycle goes on and on. And what what I want people to do is break that generational cycle by teaching their little boys and girls about consent. Who can touch you? Who can't? When is that appropriate? About proper terms for private parts. Like this is your penis. This is your vagina. These are normal things. The reason that people don't do this is that all the things we talked about for the first half, like we have our own shame. We have our own perception. We have our own memories that are erotic in nature or traumatic in nature. A child before puberty does not have any of those thoughts. So at my house, we have boys. So we have what's called the penis rules, (laughs) right? So they know, they know who can touch them, who can see them naked, when and where this is appropriate. And they don't act weird about it. They're silly. They still play. They still, you know, my youngest is six. He'll still whip it out every once in a while. I'm like, Hey, you got to watch your privacy. Like, you know, your brother, last night, the older brother was running in there naked through the bathroom. And I'm like, you know, this is not freak out about nudity. This is not sex negative. This is not like condemning any of those. This is teaching them what's appropriate, what's not appropriate, and when and where that is yeah. so that they feel safe and they feel secure. As they get older, those conversations get in more detail and get more graphic. And what I tell people is that you should be having these conversations anywhere from two to three months before the developmental stage. So you obviously don't talk to a three-year-old about masturbation. Correct. You're waiting until the 10 or 11, and you know that stage is coming. Yeah. You talk to them about sex at 10, whenever they're about to get into puberty and they start to figure out why their bodies are changing. That way, you're not talking to your 15-year-old you know, five years into masturbation when they're addicted to porn or struggling with those things. And they're like, I'm not talking to you. This is weird. Yeah. Like We've never had these conversations. Like Why would you talk to me about this? I have all my own experiences with my friends. And now you're trying to come in here and have a conversation. Hell no. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my God. This is, it's brilliant. It seems so simple, but it's so brilliant that like you're, you're doing this, prefacing the transformational time in their life and then doing it in phases in which their comprehension level of what they can absorb, what's appropriate for them to absorb and what they're going to experience. Like it's, you're, you know, that way it's, it's perfect because when you are in those really crucial, like frictional years of like 16, 17, it's not a weird thing because you've kind of conditioned them the whole way along the road. And, and it's an okay conversation as a parent to have with them, as opposed to them finding something online, like you said, or going to somebody who isn't safe and asking them because because there's some form of trust there, but it's not a safe, you know? So that's really, I love that that's part of your, what you're teaching in your book. And I love that this is part of the conversation that we really do have to start having as adults with our kids because of what we're seeing in society today. I don't think we've ever seen anything like we do today with external sources really impacting our kids at very young ages. Absolutely. And so in the book, I break that down into ages. I explain it thoroughly throughout the chapters. And then that leads into that leads into the problem with social media and the phone is that a lot of things being written in a lot of podcasts and a lot of things on the phone and social media and, and great stuff, right? And helpful. But if we, again, if we don't have the, the precursor, which is the conversations and the, the scaffolding and the building of a relationship between the parents where they can have those conversations, then social media and, and porn and the things that are online with phones that are getting them into lots of trouble, again, it's the same thing. The bridge can't tolerate that difficult conversation. Yeah. They're not, they don't have a of reference to talking to a parent about sexual or erotic or difficult or relational things. And they've already established through social media and through their peer groups what they feel comfortable with. And so now you're you're just peeing in the wind, so to speak. You're, you're, you know, spitting in the wind, expecting to, for them to listen. And then they're like, no, I'm like, we're way past this. One thing everybody always asks me is, so when should you give your kid a phone? And I want to make sure that people get this analogy or social media, because I would say, and people need to understand too, like an iPad is a phone. So people are like, oh, my kid doesn't have a phone. And I'm like, but you gave your kid an iPad before. And the only is, is that they can't call or text people for the most part. And our kids aren't getting in trouble online from calling and texting Correct. people. Like that's causing the anxiety and the depression and the suicide rate to be up 200%, yeah. right? That's 
that from 2010, that the suicide rate has increased 176% and the self-harm rate has increased 200% in teenagers since the onset of social media and smartphones being in their hand. And so what I want parents to understand is they don't, and just people in general, I'm not anti-social media. I'm not anti-technology. It's amazing in some ways. I'm anti-children having these, these things without knowing how to use them and without parents teaching them along the way how to use them. We would never give our kid a gun loaded and then just walk away. We would never give our kid the keys to the car and just go, good luck. Like those things are never going to happen. But like 87% of people have no rules for devices. Yeah. I mean, Johnny, I go around and talk all the time. I was just at a conference. There were 7,000 kids. And what what I'll do is I say, raise your hand if you have a phone. Keep your hand up if you have Snapchat and TikTok. Keep your hand up if your parent taught you how to use your phone or social media. The entire room's like, boom, all their hands go down. Wow. And I say, look around. There's 20 people out of 7,000 kids whose parents taught them how to use their phone or social media. Yeah. That's the problem we have. And so the analogy I use is we should treat the phone and social media like a driver's license. You should teach them at 11 or 12 how to use it. Let them sit beside you and watch you use it. Then at 13 or 14, you should allow them to have a little access here and there, and you should watch how they use it. Just like at 14 or 15, you get a learner's permit. And then someone with a license has to drive with you everywhere you go. Someone who's been trained and who's, who's been safe and who knows how to use the car. Same thing with social media. Then at 16 or 17, what you get is you get more resources, you get more training, and you get a driver's license. And then you can drive on your own a little bit, but you're still going to check in with your parents. There's still a curfew. There's still accountability. And then at 17 or 18, hey, you've shown over the last three to four years that you're safe. I've watched you make mistakes. I've seen you run the stop signs. I've seen you get in the fender benders, but you're safe enough, right, that you're going to be able to function in the world using your phone, using social media, protecting yourself. Oh, and by the way, along the way, you know, I had Covenant Eyes or I had Bark or I had some app on my my device that helped me keep track of you and watch you and protect you from the things that you can't protect yourself from. And so I think that if we as a culture can realize we're only 10 years into this being a problem, which means we can turn it around, but we have to have a, a society of people who see the consequences of these things and make some really hard adjustments when it comes to prevention in the, in the let's say, 11 and under crowd yeah. and in recovery for those that are 12 and up yeah. who have spent a decade being exposed to things and being immersed in things that they never should have had in their hands. Yeah, this is so powerful. My wife and I talk about it all the time because, you know, it's just like we're in this really delicate age where like technology is is part of the future. These kids like to not have technology, you're going to actually cripple them to as when they come to adults. So but as you put it, which I love is there is a process to this. And for every parent scoffing out there like, oh, yeah, try having a kid and doing that. It's like, yeah, try having a kid and doing it and try having a kid and not doing it and and see what happens. Because right now we're already seeing, like you said it, we're 10 years into this and we're already seeing significant detrimental psychological effects. Like that's not good. And that's not even to say what's going to happen to them as adults, right? We're just seeing the psychological effects as teens, you know? Yeah. So, well, we're we're going to see it shortly. We've we've got about 5 years in my opinion before the consequences of this last decade really really show up. And it's when these, you know, it's when these 15-year-olds hit 20, it's when these 20-year-olds hit 25, it's when these 13-year-olds hit 19. Yeah. You know, the research shows that one in 3 girls and one in 5 boys has experienced sexual abuse by by 18. It also shows that by by 14, 90 something percent of kids have seen hardcore porn. Wow. By 11, was seen 20 hours of pornography wow. or porn related, right? These are the things that are, that are building what I call in the book, like the, the origin story of the supervillain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. Right. So if we're a supervillain, right. And we go, or a superhero and we go, well, what, what was the origin story? What was the primer that created all of these problems in American society today? All of the human trafficking, all of the pornography addiction, all of the abuse and things that we would all stand against, right? All of the oppression. What was the origin story? The origin story, because who creates it? Who creates that is not 15-year-olds. Right. It's not 15-year-olds. It's 65-year-olds. It's, it's 55-year-olds who their childhood was immersed in magazines, yeah. maybe VHS tapes. Yeah. <laughs> like their exposure, to what created men and women who would create human trafficking and the porn industry 
was childhood's trauma and exposure to sexual content through a magazine or through a VHS tape. And that pornography was pretty light and pretty general and just people having sex and sex scenes. But the origin story for our kids and for this generation is bestiality, it's gang rape, it's abuse, it's toxic sex in the palm of their hand multiple times a day, every day from 11 up. So what will they create? Oh, yeah. What will be the ideas, the thing that they make money off of, the things that they pursue, the relationship foundations in just 10 years when they become adults and the way that they act impacts the world? This is my challenge for people is to to wake up and to realize that these things that we're allowing because they were allowed in our life are different than any time in history. And if you want to make an impact on the world and on your kids, then you have to know what to do in these issues. When it comes to talking to your kids about development, sexuality, social media, pornography, these are the things that if we do not deal with appropriately or or are having, but will have so much devastation in in their life. And here's what's going to happen, man. You remember when you hit like 23 or 24 and you call your parents or you think about your parents and you're like, oh my gosh, now I know why they said this or why they did this or why they were you know, telling me this. And parents are going to have one of two conversations with their kid. They're going to, they're going to, like, let's say you're dealing with it right now and you're like, I got a teenager. You don't understand. You guys are idiots. Okay. It is difficult. I'm not denying that. You're, you're the first parent ever to deal with this stuff. And it's very hard and, and it's impossible to do perfectly right. But they're going to call you at like 22, 23, and they're going to say, I'm so sorry for giving you so much crap about the phone and about porn and about gaming and about all these things. Thank you for protecting me from them because I see how it's devastating everyone around me. No one can function. Everybody's got erectile dysfunction. Like everybody's got anxiety and depression. Thank you for protecting me. I didn't get it then. I know I gave you a lot of crap. Please forgive me, but thank you. Or they're going to call you and they're going to say, hey, how did you let me at 12 talk you into letting me have a phone in my room? How did you never ask me what I was looking at on my device in my room? How did you never talk to me when I went out with those boys or I went out with those girls and I came home late? When I was sitting with my friends and texting and snapping and doing all these things, why did you never as a parent like ask me about that or guide me in that or equip me to deal with those things? Did you know that I was sending pictures or that I was being videoed or that I was doing things that that now at 23, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's out there for everybody forever? Like those are the things that are going to be the new conversations in the next five to 10 years that we are going to have to deal with as adults. Yeah. I think that's, that's powerful. That's a powerful enough statement right there to get parents to really think about how they want that conversation to go, you know? And I love that. I think so. Brother, this has been such a great conversation. I could talk to you for so long, man. This is so, so good. I'm learning myself from it. My wife and I are looking to have kids this year and and uh, they're going to grow up to be adults. And I want to have a book like this to help guide me along the way so that I can help make them the most, the best version of themselves that they can be as they get to adults. So thank you so much. Everybody listening, make sure you guys check out the show notes. We're going to put the book in there. We'll put how to find uh, Clint, how to get part of his ecosystem. And we'll have all that in the show notes. Clint, real quick, just let everybody know the best way to get a hold of you if they want to reach out or um, where they can go grab your book so they can you know, get involved and start coaching themselves on how to have these conversations with their kids. Yeah, man. Um, I would say go to uh, Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Both have them. I mean, Amazon obviously has got Prime and you're going to get it quicker. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's Building Better Bridges. You can look that up, Clint Davis. If you go to uh, clintdaviscounseling.com, you can find the podcast. You can find, it's called Asking Why with Clint Davis. So I have my own podcast, which I'd love to have you come yeah. on. We talk all of these things all the time. They can go follow me on Instagram or Facebook. See, I'm not anti-social media. <laughs> uh, at Clint Davis Counseling. Um, and I post daily videos and support and, and breakdowns. Um, and I'm going to be coming out with a lot more trainings this year for people. Cool. And then I would just ask if, if this really touches anyone and really helps them to really feel empowered that they would have me come on their podcast or hook me up with whoever has a reach because I think this message needs to get out to the masses. And every time I do a podcast, people call me and email me at clintdaviscounseling at gmail.com and tell me their stories. They thank me. They ask me for help. They give me specific questions around their own kids. And so I'm here for the community. If someone needs something or has a question 
or wants to just resource me and get me out there to people, um, that would mean a lot. So I really, really appreciate it. Yeah, brother. Oh man. Anybody listening, please uh, reach out to Clint. Let him know if you got connections or if you have questions, because either one of those is going to be great. Brother, you're a special human. I love what you're doing in the world today. I love that you're putting this information out on an unprecedented kind of issues that we're dealing with as adults today in relation to also how we're raising children. So thank you so much. My last question for you before you run off and get back to your practice and all your clients is what does the art of masculinity mean to you? I would say the art of masculinity means to me emptying myself, not making it about me, filling myself up with the Holy Spirit and chasing after Jesus, man. I think he he was the most masculine person there was. He was humble. He was smart. He was wise and he knew how to suffer well. And so if I can suffer well, suffer with my friends, suffer with my family, and we can get through this this world together, then man, I'm being the man that I want to be. I love that, brother. Thank you for sharing your time, your wisdom, your knowledge, and everything else. To everybody listening, as always, remember that the world deserves a better caliber of man, and it's our obligation to give it to him. 